If you have your Bibles, flip over to 1 John as we continue our way through the con- really the conclusion of 1 John. So we're looking at verses 13 through 15. Just three, chap- three verses in this chapter that we're looking at this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there may be one on the, the, should be one on the pews in front of you that you can grab and borrow. So if you, as you're looking at those verses, obviously this is, a, this is going to be a sermon on prayer, as you've thought about what we're talking about in the service as well. And I have a few resources of, on prayer that I wanted to offer to you and just make known to you. Um, the first great book on prayer is A Praying Life by Paul E. Miller. We highly recommend this book as a church. If you haven't read it, I, I would uh, ask you to go pick one of these up. We need to get more copies for the church, but we'll do that um, soon. A Praying Life by Paul Miller. Um, also, um, for children, um, I haven't read this myself, but it comes highly recommended by Nancy Guthrie, What Every Child Should Know About Prayer. So if you have any um, children in your life that you want to help pray, or parents that have children, up. It's called What Every Child Should Know About Prayer by Nancy Guthrie, so recommend that one. Now, I also want to encourage people to read our theological uh, church history forebears, so the Puritans. We should be reading the Puritans every chance we can get, and they, there's a great book on prayer that sort of analyzes the Puritans and Reformers' views of prayer called Taking Hold of God, Reformed and Puritan Perspectives on Prayer, and that is edited by Joel Beakey, Joel Beakey, Taking Hold of God, highly recommend this book. One of my favorites, as you think about, you know, what did Martin Luther, what did Calvin view of prayer? And also, um, in your own prayer life, um, we need to be thinking through aids to help you pray. And, of course, Scripture and the Psalms can help us pray, and we should be praying the Psalms. But this is a book called The Valley of Vision. You've probably heard us talk about it in years past. It's really a collection of Puritan prayers and uh, Reformers. And it covers tons of different topics uh, and can just be a great aid in prayer. What I mean by that is something that just helps you pray. You can pray these prayers, make them your own, or they could be good prompts to help you pray. Um, So the Valley of Vision as well. So recommend those to you. Again, we are in chapter 5 of 1 John. We're nearing the the end. There's only 21 verses uh, in this final chapter of 1 John. And... And so we're nearing the end. This is his conclusion and things that he's wrapping up. And you'll notice the, in verse 13 is really the thesis of the entire letter. Um, and I've mentioned it several times throughout this um, sermon series of what John wants us to know. And I'll read it for us. So if you would, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. First John five thirteen through 15. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. This is God's Word. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what John is telling us in these three short verses is, is this. He's telling us to pray. 
He doesn't use the word pray, but he's, that is what he's communicating, that we are to ask God. When we ask God, when we communicate with God, that is prayer. So he's telling us to pray because in Christ, God hears us and he will help us. And those are the two main points this morning, just two points, that God hears us and he will help us. Before we jump into those two points, those two ideas, let's hang out at verse 13 for one second. Let me read it again. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So again, uh, notice who he's writing to. I'm writing these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to believers in Jesus. He's writing to the church. This is in contrast really to to John's gospel. John's gospel is really to evangelize, to share the good news with people who don't know Jesus. And this is more geared to the the church, those people who do know Jesus. Now, it's not that clear cut. Obviously, 1 John can be used and we should take unbelievers to 1 John and, and believers can glean much from the gospel of John and we should read it. But, but these are, this is what he's emphasizing. So he wants us to know that we have eternal life, that, that we can be sure that we're saved. So if we ask the question, or if you've ever asked yourself the question, can I really know I'm saved? Without a doubt. He's saying, yes. Emphatically, yes. And you know, assurance of salvation doesn't exist really in any other faith. Right, and, and not in Islam, right? really not in any other major faith, can you have assurance that you're saved? Because, namely, because we have a Savior who perfectly uh, fulfilled and lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. So Christianity is saying, well, what it's being taught here is that we can't do it ourselves. It's, a, it's admitting we're weak and we need someone to save us. And when you cling to that Savior... You can know what he did, did save you. And so there's several things that John has been teaching us about assurance all the way through uh, chapters 1 through 5. He's pointing us to different things that can, that can give us assurance. The first thing is, is the finished work of Jesus. That Jesus lived that perfect life. That he died the death we deserved. That, that, that John knew him and, 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 and talked to him and walked with him. So that's the objective idea that Jesus is real and he lived the perfect life and he died the death we deserve. And secondly, we're to believe that. So so if we we know that's true and we believe in it, then we can have assurance. And then we can look in our life of how that plays out and get assurance by the fact that we obey his commands, that we love the brothers and sisters in Christ. So these are, again, more subjective things we see in our life. And then lastly, most importantly, the Spirit assures us. He's gone back to the Spirit again and again throughout 1 John. He's saying the Spirit indwells you and assures you of eternal life. But really what's central to all of 1 John is that you can only have assurance when you fully grasp the sufficiency of Christ's work on your behalf. The more you realize and understand that what Christ did is sufficient for you, you'll have assurance. Because you're not looking inside at your faith that is weak and stumbling around, but you're looking to Christ who did it perfectly. And so how does assurance of salvation help us? 
Well, it helps us draw near in prayer. That's, that's the thing we're going to learn this morning, that in Hebrews 4, verse 16, the writer says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That that is what assurance should lead us to, is coming confidently to God in prayer and communing with Him. And it's not just prayer, just for prayer's sake, but to draw close to God through prayer and this relationship. Uh, this has been a very busy week for Hannah and I. We've been moving into our, our new house. Well, our old house that's been renovated. And we've been very busy. It's been very hard uh, moving things back and forth and back and forth. And it's been, I don't know, 95, 96 degrees outside. And we've been exhausted and we're drinking Gatorade and water and trying to stay hydrated. And, um, and when we're busy like that, it also means that we can't have our kids with us throughout the week because they, I'd like to think they would help us, but they, you know, they like to, they're kids, they like to play. Um, and so they're not all that helpful. So we've been, we've been shuffling them around to different people and we just haven't been seeing them that often. And we even took them to Hannah's parents yesterday to spend time with them. And uh, I could just, I could see it on their faces. They just missed us this week, right? They just, they were just sad. They weren't around us. And we, I was sad that we hadn't seen them very often. And what I noticed though, in the midst of that sadness, a quick, brief conversation, heart to heart, face to face, it's going to be okay, I'm going to see you tomorrow, go have fun with Nana and Papa, that can calm a child's spirit because they know what you're saying uh, is true, but you're also connecting with them, you're, con- you're conversing with them, you're communicating with them, and it calms them down and you have this communion with your child that they didn't have before, that they were worried about because we hadn't seen each other face to face. That is really the goal of prayer. It's conversation and communion with God, with your Father in heaven. And when you are face to face with him in his word and you're praying, that will encourage your heart. The first uh, idea of what we're looking at is that God hears us, that he hears us. Look at verse 14 with me. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Before I jump into the idea that God is is hearing us, that he hears us when we pray, the first great motivation, though, to pray is because God tells us to pray, that he commands us to pray. That's why we should pray. Romans 12, verse 12, Paul says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Paul says, Pray without ceasing. 1 Samuel, Samuel um, talking to the people when they say they want a king, he says, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. So in a sense, I mean, he's a prophet, so he should be praying for the people, but it's a sin, he's saying, not to lift each other up in prayer. We're commanded to pray. Psalm 32, 6 says, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. And Martin Luther actually argued that it's the third commandment that you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain that should draw us to prayer, that we should use and call upon the name of God in a right way. Right, that, is the op- that, is, that is obeying the third commandment. 
So that's the first great motivation. We should pray because God tells us to pray. The second great motivation to pray is that God has an open ear to your prayers. He hears us. Brothers and sisters, you, do you believe that you have a 24-7 access to the Lord of the universe? That you have 24-7 access to Him in the middle of the night, in the heat of the day, early in the morning, and at night, in the evening, at dinner time. You can always call upon Him, and He's always listening. Sam Alberry says, Prayer is not the flare gun of the desperate or room service for the indulgent. It's the confidence of the adopted. Prayer is the confidence of the adopted. I wanted to read this short story from, from Russell Moore and from his book, Adopted for Life. It's about adoption. And it it, it kind of tells the tale of their adoption story when they went to the Soviet Union to adopt their children back in the 80s. And he gets to this idea of what it means to be heard, the importance of being heard, responded to. He says, The creepiest sound I've ever heard was nothing at all. My wife Maria and I stood in the hallway of an orphanage somewhere in the former Soviet Union on the first of two trips required for our petition to adopt. Orphanage staff led us down a hallway to greet the two one-year-olds that we hoped would become our sons. Well, the horror wasn't the squalor and the stench, although we at times stifled the urge to vomit and weep. The horror was the quiet of it all. The place was more silent than a funeral home by night. I stopped and pulled on Maria's elbow. Why is it so quiet? The place is filled with babies. Well, both of us compared the stillness with the buzz and punctuated squeals that came from our church nursery back at home. Here, if we listened carefully enough, we could hear babies rocking themselves back and forth, the crib slats gently bumping against the walls. These children did not cry because infants eventually learn to stop crying if no one ever responds to their calls for food, comfort, or love. No one ever responded to these children, so they stopped. The silence continued as we entered the boys' rooms. Little Sergi, now Timothy, smiled at us, dancing up and down while holding the side of his crib. Little Maxim, now Benjamin, stood straight at attention, regal and czar-like. But neither boy made a sound. We read them books filled with words they couldn't understand about saying goodnight to the moon and cows jumping over the same. But there were no cries, no squeals, no groans. Every day we left at the appointed time in the same way we'd entered. Silence. And on the last day of the trip, Marie and I arrived at the moment we had dreaded since the minute we received our adoption referral. We had to tell the boys goodbye, as by law we had to return to the U.S. and wait for the legal paperwork to be completed before returning to pick them up for good. After hugging and kissing them, we walked out into the quiet hallway as Maria shook with tears, and that's when we heard the scream. Little Maxim fell back in his crib and let out a guttural yell. It seemed he knew, maybe for the first time, that he would be heard. And on some primal level, he knew he had a father and a mother now. I'll never forget how the hairs on my arms stood up as I heard the yell. I was struck, maybe for the first time, by the force of the Abba cry passages in the New Testament, ones I memorized in vacation Bible school. And I was surprised by how little I had gotten it until now. Little Maxim's scream changed everything. More 
I think, than did the judge's verdict and the notarized paperwork. It was the moment in his recognizing that he would be heard. And he went from being an orphan to being a son. It was also the moment I became a father, if in fact, in fact, if not in law, that we both recognized that something was wrong because suddenly life as it had been seemed terribly disordered. And up to that time, I had read the Abba cry passages in Romans and Galatians the same way I had heard them preached, as a gurgle of familiarity, the spiritual equivalent of infant cooing papa or daddy. Relational intimacy is surely present in the texts Hence Paul's choice of such personal word as Abba. But this definitely isn't sentimental. After all, Scripture tells us that Jesus' spirit lets our hearts cry, Abba, Father. Jesus cries, Abba, Father, as he screams with loud cries and tears for deliverance in the garden. And similarly, the doctrine of adoption shows us that we groan with the creation itself as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. It's the scream of the crucified. And I would add the scream of the adopted. So you see what Russell's saying there is these children would not cry out because they didn't think they were heard by anybody. A silent room of, of babies. That's strange. And so sometimes I think we can get that way in our own prayer life where we don't pray. Why do we not pray? We don't believe anyone's listening. We don't believe he's hearing us. And so what we need to do is go back to God's word, remind ourselves that he is listening. And if you know he's listening, you will pray. You will pray in your mind. You'll pray out loud. You'll pray in your car. You'll pray in the shower. You'll start praying because you know the God of the universe is listening. And you're not an orphan. but You're adopted and you're loved. We have access to God. And he cares. It's not just that he hears, he cares. 1 Peter 5, 6-7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time and cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. God desires to hear our prayers more than we desire to pray. Think about that. Matthew Henry Uh, as that very famous commentary wrote in his diary, I love prayer. It is that which buckles on all the Christian's armor. Henry wrote, It's our wisdom and duty to begin every day with God. Wherever God finds a praying heart, he will be found to be a prayer-hearing God. Wherever there's a praying heart, he is listening. Well, John Calvin also Um, had much to say on prayer in his time, and he described it as conversation with God. He called it conversation with God, our Heavenly Father, and reverently speaking. It's, It's family conversation, or even intimate covenantal conversation, in which the believer confides in God as a child confides in his father. Prayer is, he says, an emotion of the heart within, which is poured out and laid open before God. In prayer, we both communicate and commune with our Father in heaven, feeling our transparency in His presence. Like Christ in Gethsemane, we cast our desires, sighs, anxieties, fears, hopes, and joys into the lap of God. He said, through prayer, a Christian puts his worries bit by bit on God when you pray. 
And he says, we're permitted to pour into God's bosom the difficulties which torment us in order that he may loosen the knots which we cannot untie. He loosens the knots that we cannot untie. So you kids here, I don't know if many of you kids, young kids, have learned to tie your shoes yet. But sometimes when you tie your shoes and you slip your shoes off and you put your shoe back on, but it's all tied, really tight, and you just can't get that knot untied. Sometimes life is like that, or you have knots in your life. There are either relationships or jobs or whatever is stressing you out that you cannot control. It's like a knot you can't untie. And that's when we go to prayer. That's the time we say, I can't do this, God, but I know you can, and it's in your hands. I heard someone say recently that anxiety is wasted prayer. Anxiety is wasted prayer. God wants to hear your heart. Well, we're also told in our text in verse 14 that we are to pray anything, ask anything according to his will, and he hears us. So let's ask that question. What does it mean? How do you know you're, you're praying according to God's will? That's important to know, right? To know if he's going to answer well, the first thing, the first area we should go to is, is to know that we should pray from the heart. To know, to pray for God's will or in God's will, you need to pray from the heart. Martin Luther once said, All teachers of Scripture conclude that the essence and the nature of prayer are nothing else than the, than the raising of the heart. It follows that everything that is not a lifting of the heart is not prayer. If you remember Matthew 6, where, where Jesus says, Do not be like the hypocrites who, who, who think they're going to be heard for their many words, words upon words, and, and they're saying these public prayers, and everybody's hearing them. And I wasn't trying to say what Matt said earlier. I wasn't trying to say uh, written down public prayers aren't good. They can be, but they need to, be writ- they need to be come, come from the heart, right? Either way. But Jesus says, Go into your room. Shut, shut the door. And pray to your Father who is in secret. That those are the best kind of prayers, right? That no one's watching. It's easy to get up here and pray, to be honest. It's easy, right? It's, it, it's, your tendency is to put on a show, but we are to do it from the heart. Luther said, our prayer must, must have few words, but be great and profound in content and meaning. The fewer the words, Luther said, the better the prayer. The fewer the words, the better the prayer. The more words, the poorer the prayer. Few words and richness of meaning is Christian. Many words and lacking of meaning is pagan. Not saying all long prayers are bad, but what, what Luther's trying to tell us is it's the heart that matters. Even a, even a short little prayer as, oh God, I need you, can be the best prayer you've ever prayed. In God's eyes. Secondly, true prayer is rooted in God's word. Referring to the Lord's prayer, Luther said, there is no nobler prayer to be found on earth than the Lord's prayer. For it has the excellent testimony that God loves to hear it. He knew that if he prayed it, God would be pleased because God himself gives it. That our prayers are to be rooted in God's word. And you know, praying God's word is a great way to pray according to God's will. So we should try to do that. Do that in your own 
quiet times with God is, is pray God's word. Pray any section of scripture that you get to. So especially when you get to an area or a scripture that you feel lacking in or weak in, you can pray a prayer. Lord, help me with that. In our text this morning, 1 John 5, 13, you can pray this. God, give me assurance of my salvation. When you get to that, that he wants to give us assurance of salvation. God, give it. And you know, Jesus modeled this for us, praying according to his will. Jesus' will was always one with the Father's. His whole life lived. He lived according to his Father's will. He always spoke that which the Father wished him to say. And he taught his disciples to pray, Our Father in heaven, your will be done. That's in the Lord's Prayer that we're to say that. He even embodied that last petition at Gethsemane when he fell on his face and prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but not as I will, but as you will. James Montgomery Boyce says, Jesus teaches and models that proper prayer is not that we change God's mind to accept our will, but rather that God changes our minds to accept His will. That in prayer... What God is really seeking in prayer is, is not necessarily to change Him or to change our circumstances all the time, which he, which he can do, but it's really to change us. That's really what ultimately prayer is for. It's to align our will, to align our mind with God and to commune with Him. Well, that's the first idea, that He hears us. Secondly, He helps us. Let's look at verse 15. And we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, and we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So he hears us, and then we have the request that he asks. He, he, he helps us. Well, the third great motivation to pray is, is God's power, that God can do anything. Ephesians 3, Paul writes, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Do you hear how Paul started that prayer? Now to him who is able to do far more than we could ever ask or think. That very often our prayers come up short to what God can do and is willing to do. We don't pray. It's not that we pray too big a prayers often. It's we pray too small a prayers. We don't pray big enough. And this is really good news, that we have the request that we ask when we ask according to his will. That God is going to grant these things for us and that he helps us. Romans 8.26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been to the point where you didn't know what to pray for? That you're so confused and trodden down by life and disappointed you don't know what to pray for and all you can do is groan and ache well did you know that the spirit is praying for you in those circumstances that he's interceding for you praying a prayer that you don't even know how to put that prayer together what a blessing that we have the spirit so we're to, we're to ask God for these things, and he's going to grant these things according to his will, and he helps us. But you might be asking, what about when God takes too long? 
right? It's, it's taking too long. It's not on my timeline. He's not answering me and giving me an answer tomorrow. And there's no deadline. Or we're to do two things in that situation. First, we're to pray with patience. Secondly, we're to pray with expectation. The first idea is pray with patience. Um, Donald McKim says this, Once I heard a sermon titled, Why Doesn't God Hurry? We wonder. We pray and pray and no answer seems to arrive. Our faith may flicker, but as Arthur Hildersham pointed out, a Puritan, we may be sure that as the Lord doth hear and regard every prayer we do make, so he will certainly give us a gracious answer in due time. In due time means in God's time. There, are, there have been people, there are people in our bulletin and that we've been praying, praying for as a church for years to be healed. Right? And we're going to continue to pray for them, expectant and hopeful, but we pray with patience, knowing that God works all things for good in his time. And his timing, brothers and sisters, is always better than ours. And we're also to pray with expectation. McKim says, we pray because we believe God listens. He isn't distant and disinterested. He's close and attentive. Another Puritan, Paul Baines, wrote, let us be sure of this, that he bottles up our tears, files up our prayers, putting them on record before him. Psalm 56, 8 says that God bottles up our tears. He keeps a record of our anxieties and our prayers. Our prayers do not fly into empty space. They are heard and stand before a gracious God who remembers them. Our prayers are precious to him, standing like tears in a bottle. And he keeps a book of remembrance filled with our prayers. We can be sure he hears and will answer. Well, that's the first question you might ask. The second question you might ask is, what about when God says no to our prayer? What if we don't get what we've been praying for? What if we don't get? Because truly, you know, some prayers, God in his wisdom has chosen not to give us. A good example of this is Paul uh, praying or asking God to remove the thorn in his flesh. We don't know what the thorn in the flesh was for Paul. We don't know what he was dealing with exactly but we know that it, it was driving him crazy and it was painful and it would hurt. We don't know if, doubt it was a literal thorn. But God said, no, I won't remove it for your weakness. It's better you, Paul, it's better for you to be weak than strong because you then proclaim my strength when you are weak. Don, Douglas O'Donnell says, while our prayers do not determine God's decisions, they do develop our relationship with God. Even unanswered prayer can deepen the bond. As Robert uh, Yarbrough illustrates, John may understand prayer not primarily as communicating in order to acquire petitions or to somehow force God's hand, but as communing with God. Moses' high esteem in God's sight lay in his face-to-face interchange with God, not his ability to direct God's ways with his prayers. You see, Moses had this deep relationship with God. And it wasn't that he got everything he wanted, it's that he got to be face-to-face with God. And Jesus' Gethsemane request for the cup to be removed was not granted, but far from diminishing his sense of the Father's closeness, it intensified it. 
Bernard of Clairvaux says this, Brothers, do not despise our prayer, for when it has gone forth from your mouths, it has been heard in heaven. And be sure either that what you've asked for will be granted for us, or that what's been asked for has not been beneficial. So when we ask things from God, either He's going to give it to us in the way we asked it, and that is awesome and that's amazing when that happens, or either He's not going to give it to us because it's not good for us, ultimately. That he has a better plan for us. A, something, something better for us. And you know, that's a hard place to be in sometimes as a believer because what that means is you've got you've to trust him. That we don't have, we're not God. We don't have the whole view of eternity in front of us. And we don't even have our whole lives in front of us. We don't know what's going to happen. And so what it takes is trust and faith that he knows what he's doing when we ask. And he calls us to ask and to trust. I'm reminded also of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the, Old, in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel when they are put before the fiery furnace. And they say, If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. Strong statement, right? He will deliver us. But what's the next verse? But if not... Be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image. So they're saying, God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't deliver us, we're going to stay faithful. So even in their predicament, they knew that they could suffer and die. And as I close, before Jesus went to the cross, God said no to Jesus. You remember his prayer in Gethsemane when he said, May this cup, if it be your will, Father, could this cup of wrath, could this, this cross, could, could it not happen? Because he saw the pain, he saw the wrath, he saw how difficult the road was going to be. And in his most human moment of sorrow, he asked God if it would be possible. Could, he not, could it not be this way? And God said no to Jesus so that he could say yes to us. He said no to Jesus so that, so that he could then go to the cross and say yes to us, that all the promises of God are yes in Christ. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and put his seal on us and given his spirit to us. The most important answered prayer God has ever given you is the yes of Calvary. That Jesus went to the cross and died. That's the most important promise and the most important answered prayer you've ever gotten. Your sin is canceled. Your righteousness is in Jesus. Your past is forgiven and your hope is secure in heaven. So no matter what prayers we ask for and don't receive. That, that prayer has been answered. And that's what leads us forward in our hope as we look to the cross. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for feeding us. Thank you for pointing us to pointing us back to what Christ has done, but also to the great supper of the Lamb, the feast that we have in front of us that lay ahead And we look forward to that day. 
when all things will be brought to completion. And this is just a foretaste of that. So Father, in this moment, in these moments, encourage our faith to look to Christ, our Savior. In His name we pray. Amen.